Well, good morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome to you, John's. It's great to have you with us as we continue these studies in Jesus' most famous of all sermons, I guess, the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible in front of you, might you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5. We've come this morning to verses 11 to 16 of Matthew 5. As you turn there, why don't I lead us in prayer? Almighty God, we thank you that you give to us the assurance that you walk with us in life. Whether we're enjoying wonderful days, mountaintop experiences, full of joy and happiness and thanksgiving, or whether we're in the valley, even of the shadow of death, we know that you are with us, that you lead and guide and comfort us. And so we praise you for the promise of your presence with us now And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you might open our minds and our hearts and our lives to receive your word and to do what Jesus says. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. Let me read to us then from Matthew chapter 5 and starting at verse 11. Jesus says to his disciples, with a whole bunch of people in a crowd listening in and eavesdropping. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And it'd be great if you might keep that passage open in front of you. Well, one of the uh, writers, non-Christian writers I enjoy reading is a guy called Alan de Botton, and he's got a book called Status Anxiety. Our American friends would say it's Status Anxiety. I guess, in which he's wanting to argue that all of us worry far too much about what other people think of us. We know that everyone has a different definition of what it means to be a success in life. But for de Botton, then status anxiety is the worry that we're not on a high enough rung of society's ladder. And therefore, we're not getting the, the love and the status and the respect that we crave from the people around us. He says that we, we chase after stuff like money and fame and success and influence, not as an end in themselves, but as a mean to, means to giving us the, the love and respect that we want from people around us. And we fear things like redundancy and retirement, and sometimes even the success of our friends because in different ways, each of those challenge our place in society. The root problem, he says, is that 
the way that we think about ourselves is far too dependent upon what other people think of us. He says we rely on signs of respect from the world around us in order to feel tolerable to ourselves. Well, I don't know if you recognize that in yourself at all, but the really interesting thing for me about the book is that he's writing because he wants to set people free from the fear of those around them. And he says the way that we do that, and I quote, is if we adopt a set of values that is different to the majority view. He says, if you're not living for the same things as everybody else, then you won't care what they think of you. And so the book invites us to imagine a life or maybe even a community who are so secure in their own identity and values that they're not phased by what other people think of them, but they live wholeheartedly for their own values rather than those of the world around them. And I'm guessing most of us will have twigged by now that the reason I'm telling us uh, about that book is that as we read Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, we see that the church is meant to be exactly that sort of community, a group of people who are so committed to the values of Jesus and his kingdom that we're unfazed by what, what the world thinks of us. A, a group whose life is so attractive and distinctive that other people will want to come to know the God that we serve. The trouble, of course, is that in every generation, the church is riddled with insecurity. We're not as free from status anxiety as we should be. And so we're always tempted into a sort of hybrid existence in which we get our identity and our values, not just from God and his kingdom, but from the world around us as well. We slip, if you like, into trying to serve both God and mammon. That's an attitude that Jesus will challenge head on in a few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. But at this stage, he's reminding us of the privilege of being members of his kingdom. And his aim is that he wants us to be so confident of our identity in him that we are unashamed to live for him so confident of our identity in him that we are unashamed to live for him. We've got two points as we think about this this morning. The first is the, the negative side, I guess, of what happens when you live according to the values of the kingdom. God's people are opposed. Don't duck it. God's people are opposed. Don't duck it. Verse 11 again, just to remind us. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've seen that these early chapters of Matthew are dominated by the announcement that eternity is invading time, specifically that the eternal kingdom of God's blessing and salvation has arrived on earth in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the, the staggering offer 
that goes along with this announcement that God's kingdom is here because God's king is here, the offer that goes along with that is that if we turn back to God in repentance, if we believe in Jesus Christ as our king, then we are given a share in his kingdom. Jesus said, as we saw a few weeks ago, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we've been thinking together about the privileges that go along with being a part of God's kingdom. We shall be comforted. We shall inherit the earth. We shall be satisfied. We shall see God. The kingdom of heaven is ours. But alongside all of that blessing comes real pain. Because when you belong to Jesus, people will revile you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you for no other reason than that you take his name. We started to see that last week in verse 10, but in verse 11, this trouble comes even closer to home. He doesn't say this time, blessed are they in the third person, people over there, but rather blessed are you. Because this persecution isn't something you'll just read about online, but something that you'll see and feel and experience. Might happen just when you're reading what our media or watching what our media has to say about biblical Christianity. It's always so negative, isn't it? If you ever watch a TV show in which there's a a Bible-believing Christian, they're almost always portrayed in a very negative light. And closer to home still, you will have felt this, I guess, at one stage or another, in an office, in a family, in a neighborhood, in a social circle. And like last week, we're still talking about opposition that comes to us on account of Jesus. And because we're followers of him, we know that sometimes Christians can talk about how they're suffering for Christ when really it's trouble that we've, we've brought on ourselves through our own lack of wisdom or godliness. Here it's explicitly unjust suffering that comes to us, maybe verbally, maybe physically, just because we follow Jesus. And it happens because those who live by the standards of God's kingdom will always attract not only the approval of their father in heaven, but the disapproval of the world around us. Sometimes that disapproval is just subtle and sneering. And I guess this is the way it is for most of us most of the time. A a patient was being interviewed on Radio 4 the other week about their time in intensive care with COVID-19. And as part of the interview, he said how while he was in intensive care, he remembers having a very powerful image of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he said that it reminded him that Jesus was mighty enough and powerful enough to be able to meet, to help him in his hour of need. But without missing a beat, the presenter responded by saying that any image that he'd seen could just as easily be ascribed to the drugs that he was on in hospital. In other words, you're you're an idiot if you expect us to believe in a God who intervenes in the world in a direct way. I suspect we've all faced 
similar mockery. But on other occasions, the opposition that comes is violent and deadly. It's not very often, if at all, like this in our country at the moment, but in places like Nigeria and Somalia and Pakistan, it is commonplace. I read the other day about a young pastor in Nigeria who was attacked and killed for his faith by Islamic militants in April. Um, His wife was a 27-year-old woman called Rose. They had two little children. She was, at the time, seven months pregnant with their third. The only reason she wasn't at home when trouble came calling is that she was away at an antenatal appointment. But I was um, blown away by the response that God enabled her to give to the death of her husband. She said, my prayer is that his killers will get to know this Jesus that I know. I do forgive them, and I pray that the Lord saves their souls. It's a wonderful response to the inevitable persecution that comes our way. The Apostle Peter said to any and every Christian, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And here too, Jesus issues a health warning to his followers. A bit like a danger symbol in a chemistry lab, if you remember those, or a a warning sign on the side of a truck. He says that the Christian life is unavoidably toxic. I used to think that if I lived a good Christian life, if I was kind to people, that I would avoid all opposition for my faith. But that's not how it works. Jesus talks about when we face opposition, not if. And faithful servants of God have always been persecuted. Uh, Verse 12 reminds us that it happened to the prophets of the Old Testament. It happened to the apostles, it happened to almost every church in the New Testament, and it will happen to us in different measures and at different times and in different seasons, sure. But it will come. But here's the surprise. Let's go for a bit of audience participation, if we may. It's hard to do this when we're live streaming, isn't it? But might I encourage you to to take a finger or a thumb and to cover the very first word of verse 11 in your Bible, and then to look at the rest of the sentence and see what you think it might, uh, you might have expected it to say as it talks about the persecution we face. Maybe would we have thought it would say, unlucky are you? or to be pitied are you, or in need of lots of tea and sympathy and a big hug when you are persecuted and insulted for the name of Christ. Surprising, isn't it? It says, blessed are you, because even when the world hates us, the approval of our Father in heaven remains upon us. And therefore, Jesus says, rejoice, and be glad. There are lots of reasons in the New Testament why people rejoice when they suffer, as strange as that sounds. In Acts 5, the apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer 
on Jesus, uh, for Jesus' name. In 1 Peter, the rejoicing was because it both proves and refines our faith. Here in Matthew, the focus is on our future. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, for great is your reward in heaven. That reward language can be a bit confusing to some. It's not that we're earning our place in heaven. The only reason that anybody ever gets to heaven is because of Jesus and his grace to us. But it is that like any good father, our father in heaven loves to reward his children for doing good. And just as he was pleased when his son was so focused on the eternal joy that was set before him, that he was willing to endure agony upon the cross for us, well, so too our Father is pleased when we're so focused on our eternal reward that we're willing to endure suffering for him. Our willingness to suffer doesn't make us Christians, but it is a triumphant sign that we are Christians. And the reward that awaits us motivates us and strengthens us in the present to remain faithful to our God even as we suffer. And we need that reward. Because you, you, and the hope of that reward, and you'll know this if you've been there yourself, that hot on the heels of the threat of persecution comes the temptation to compromise. It's so much easier to duck opposition than to endure it. So much easier to, to downplay your commitment to Christ than to live up to it and the standards of his kingdom. So easy to be more concerned about our status in this world than the reward that awaits us in the next. But forewarned is forearmed. And Jesus wants us to be strong and to persevere in living kingdom lives. When I was a young Christian, I remember hearing a sermon in which we were given three E's about uh, suffering and persecution. I thought I'd share them with you because they've been very helpful to me over the years. The first was expect it. We follow a suffering servant and so of course we ourselves will suffer. Expect it, examine it. If I am suffering, make sure that it's on account of Jesus rather than my own folly. And then third, endure it. For the reward that God has stored up for you in heaven is not in, in verse 12 described as being trifling or meager or insignificant, but great. So remember your reward, rejoice and be glad. You will inherit the earth. You will see God. The kingdom of heaven is yours. That's our first point this morning from verses 11 and 12. God's people are opposed, don't duck it. Second from 13 to 16, God's people are distinctive, don't hide it. God's people are distinctive, don't hide it. Uh, some of us will be familiar with some very famous sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. 
They all begin with the phrase, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Famous sayings, wonderful sayings. Here are two slightly less well-known sayings, but that are equally wonderful in their own way. As Jesus twice says, you are. You are, in verse 16, the light of the, in verse 14, the light of the world. But before that, you are the salt of the earth. That phrase, salt of the earth, is a bit unusual, isn't it? We sometimes uh, use it to refer to someone who is good and honest and honourable. And there's a, a bit of debate about what Jesus means here. You may have heard it said, as I have, that the key function of salt is that it's a preservative And therefore, Jesus is saying that we ought to have a preserving effect on the good in the society around us. And that's how people tend to interpret this verse. They argue from distinctive uses of salt in the ancient world to our Christian living. Um, I read one article online that lists eight different uses of salt in the ancient world and thereby identifies eight different ways in which Christians are supposed to be salty in the world. And conveniently for the author of the article, they all began with the letter P. So apparently we are to preserve and to penetrate and to purify the world, even to poison the world was his fourth point. I thought he was reaching at that point. It doesn't sound terribly Christian to me. We're also, he said, meant to promote God and to please him and to prove ourselves to be agents of change in the world. I was left reeling by a slight overdose of peas, if I'm honest, when I came across a commentary that lists not eight, but 11 different uses of salt in the ancient world and made 11 very similar points. Not to be outdone, a friend, a fellow preacher, minister guy told me of a sermon he'd once heard in which the speaker had listed 16 different uses of salt in the ancient world. He went slightly pale at the memory of the sermon, if I'm honest. And I said, did he concentrate your preacher friend on on just one or two of those? And he said, no, he gave us all 16 for 90 minutes. Well, you'll be relieved to know we're not going to do that this morning. Actually, I don't think it's all that complicated. And we don't need to go and investigate a whole bunch of stuff about the ancient world to understand what Jesus is saying. All we need to do is to read on in verse 13, because it's very clear there that Jesus is talking about the taste of salt. And he's saying that this saltiness is something that can be lost by some who, at least at first, appear to be among God's people. In the context, he can only be referring to the distinctive values of the kingdom that were set out for us in verses three to 10. Our poverty of spirit, mourning for our sin, our meekness, our hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being peacemakers. It may also be that Significant that in the Old Testament, salt was a a symbol of the the special covenant relationship between God and his people. Then Jesus is saying to his disciples, the world may hate you, but I want you to know that you are the true people of God. 
It's you and no one else who is blessed and favoured by God. The kingdom of heaven is yours. So don't lose your saltiness. Don't compromise your allegiance to God. Come back to that in a second. But verse 14 makes the same point in a slightly different way. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What's remarkable about this, I think, is that, as I mentioned elsewhere, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. But here he's talking to a ragtag bunch of new disciples to spiritually bankrupt sinners like you and me. And he says, as I am to the world, so now are you. Because of your connection to me, you are the means by which the light of my salvation is going to reach out to the ends of the earth. You are the light of the world. Or to put it in a different way. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was a city that was built on a hill. And the plan had always been that the godliness of Jerusalem would shine so brightly that people from every nation would want to flock to Jerusalem in order to know and worship her God. And again, Jesus is saying, you Christians might be the most despised people in the world. You might be threatened, reviled, and even killed. But if you're among my disciples, you are the light of the world. You're the new Jerusalem. And God wants your godliness to shine so brightly for him that others are drawn to worship and praise him. So put them together. And these two you are sayings are designed to bolster the confidence of God's persecuted people. They're designed to help us grasp how God sees us in order that we might be who we have become. We might live the distinctive kingdom lives that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. And what I love about it is that these statements are as true of those who have been believers for just a few days and are feeling very shaky in their faith as they are for the most mature and stable of believers. You, if you've trusted in Jesus, however your last week has been, however you're feeling this morning, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we need to be confident in that identity so that we don't slip into the twin dangers mentioned in verse 13 and verse 15. As we talk about these, we're beginning to to wrap up. In in verse 13, the danger is the one we've seen, the danger of tastelessness. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, disciples need to guard themselves against making the same mistake as that of the Pharisees in the first century. They were a a people 
we may know, who prided themselves on their religious and spiritual heritage. But they had no poverty of spirit. A people who criticized the sins of others, but were blind to their own. A people who didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness because they were self-righteous. And that kind of spirituality, if we can call it that, says Jesus is good for nothing except to be thrown out where it will be trampled underfoot. So these words are a, a direct warning shot across the bows of anyone listening who doesn't really mourn for their sin, but loves it, who isn't merciful, but refuses to forgive and forget. Jesus says, be very careful, be very careful. And, and for all of us, this verse is meant to be a barrier that would, ever prevent, that would prevent us from ever sliding into that sort of tasteless living. We're not meant to read this verse and then worry about whether our lives are salty and righteous enough. We're meant to read this verse and cast ourselves upon God and his mercy and ask him by his spirit to keep us persevering in kingdom living and with tasty, salty, kingdom righteous living. Because we know that Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. We can bring him all of our failures every day and know that he will continue to bless us. But woe to us if we were to think that that gives us a license to live by the standards of the world and for the approval of the world instead of for the standard, by the standards of our king and for his approval. That first danger then is tastelessness. The second is the danger of concealment or hiding our light. If you've ever been in the middle of nowhere on a, a dark night, you'll know that even if there's just a, a single house somewhere in the distance with the lights on, then that light is visible from miles around. We can imagine how travelers who were walking through the night trying to get to the city of Jerusalem would have been encouraged by the sight of that whole city with its lights on top of a hill. That sort of light can't be hidden, says Jesus. And here he says, that our light, uh, his people's light, is to be that obvious and on display to the world. Again, you can think of a lamp that you've got in your own house. Maybe you've got one on a desk somewhere or on a bedside table. If you were sitting down one evening to read, I guarantee you wouldn't first turn on the lamp and then put a cover over the top of it defeat the point. You want the, the lamp to cast its light all around. And in the same way, says Jesus, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, make sure that your kingdom character your righteous life is on display to those around you in the world 
so that they can see your good deeds and are brought to want to know and to serve your God. Well, I have to say, I really love this thought because Jesus is saying that your life and mine is like a, a living advertisement for God's kingdom. We know how it works with adverts. We see them on TV all the time. Uh, you see an advert for a new product, maybe a, a new phone or something, an iPhone or a Samsung, whatever, or for a new car. And if it's a, a good advert, you think to yourself, that is a great product. You think I might even want one of those. And so says Jesus, Christian, let your life be like a living walking, breathing, talking advertisement for how wonderful the kingdom of heaven is. Let the students in our church be so full of Jesus that your friends and classmates look at you and think, I'd really like some of what they've got. Or let the mums in our church be so distinctively Jesus and kingdom-centered that your friends think, I love her perspective on life. I wish I had the peace that she has. Or maybe some of our older people. Let our lives be so full of the hope of heaven that our friends look at our life and think, I wish I had the hope, the confidence in the face of death that those Christians have. For all of us, whoever you are, wherever you're watching this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, let your life be a walking, talking advert for him. The very best thing about it is that Jesus promises us that this is an advertising campaign that is guaranteed to work. God has made us his people. By grace, he has made us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The world won't always love us for that. Sometimes it will revile us. But if we let the light of our good works, our righteousness, shine before the people around us day to day, well, so God can and will work through us to bring others to their knees in praise of him. This isn't a, a verse about launching a campaign for social justice in society. It's not a verse about impacting the structures of a godless society, although those things may well flow from it. It's about living lives, first and foremost, that transparently display the values of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that kind of advertising will work. And I take it that that would be a really attractive and appealing, a, a tantalizing thought for any Christian listening this morning. Almost everything in our world urges us to lose our saltiness and to hide our light. Keep your faith very private, we're told. But think of, I was reminded to think of those uh, among my own friends or in my family that don't yet know Jesus, aren't members of his kingdom and don't have the hope of eternal life. 
Maybe you'll be reminded to think of friends in your school or on your street who are apathetic to him, people in your office who look down on you or mock you because of your allegiance to Christ. Well, it could very well be that God would use the light of your kingdom character to intrigue them, to ask you to give them the reason for the hope that you have, so that in time you get an opportunity to proclaim the good news to them. And on the last day, they are then found praising our Father in heaven with us. It's some prospect, isn't it? That every Christian every day is a walking, breathing, living, talking advertisement for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That our lives are an invitation to people to come and know the God that we live for, we love and we serve. Two aspects then we've had today of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the world. You will be opposed, don't duck it, but you will always be distinctive, don't hide it. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we want to thank you that when we come to the Lord Jesus with our sins, when we ask him to forgive us, that he never drives us away, but always welcomes us with open arms, that in him we're forgiven and cleansed and washed clean, that we're adopted into your family and made your children, that we're made the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Pray in particular for any listening or watching this morning who are right now having a, a hard time for their faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you might use these words that he said 2,000 years ago to give them fresh strength and courage. Please remind them of the great reward that you have stored up in heaven for them that in, imperishable inheritance that can never, uh, will never perish, spoil or fade. Thank you that you promised to keep that inheritance safe for us and to guard us all the way to heaven. Please use the thought of that reward to give our brothers and sisters perseverance and strength and courage to face whatever it is that you've put before them. And for all of us, our Father, if and when the, the time comes when we are opposed for our faith, we pray that you would give us the courage not to compromise, but to stand firm, to rejoice in the privilege of bearing the name of Jesus and to look forward to our reward in heaven. And in the meantime, our Father, we pray that you would help us to maintain and persevere in distinctive kingdom lives. May we not lose our saltiness. May we not hide our light. But instead, may we be committed to living openly and publicly for Jesus. We pray that our lives would be genuinely different from the people around us, that we'd be so secure in our identity in Christ that we're willing to live 
by his standards and not those of the world around us. And we pray that as people see our good deeds, you might work through us to attract them and to draw them to Jesus so that in time they might hear the good news. They too might repent and believe in Jesus and on that last day be found with us praising him as the great saviour that he is. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.